millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well-lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to the Crime and Investigation podcast. My name is Martin Hines, and this time we are joined by Nick Yaris, who spent over 20 years on death row as an innocent man. Nick, it's great to have you on the show today. First things first, though, you spent over 20 years on death row knowing you were innocent. So is every day a blessing that you're free? Yeah, it's, it's strange. I never stopped being childlike and seeing a nighttime sky. Or I love the fact that the smells always draw me out of my thoughts. So I never stop appreciating my freedom. I never can. The reasons you look at the beauty of life in that way, can you just explain to people who may not know your story yet, why? I grew up in the heart, one of the hardest cities in America. Philadelphia averages around 275 murders a year. It is a blue-class, collar, hard town. And the area that I grew up in particular there was a lot of racial violence and gangs, so it was really bleak area for me. So if I was to describe myself as a young person, I was lost in the chaotic world of ultra-violence. At the age of seven, I was sexually assaulted and had my head beaten by a man with a rock in his hand. By the age of 10, I became an alcoholic who kept that secret attack as my torment. By the time I was 14, I was a drug addict and loser who was stealing cars. By the time I was 20, I was arrested, falsely charged, and convicted of rape and murder of a woman I never met based on being arrested in a stolen car one night. I would spend the next 23 years in solitary confinement fighting not to be executed while also trying to endure some of the hardest prison ever in America. You mentioned your childhood there, and it sounds almost barbaric in terms of how miserable it was. Were there ever any happy memories? Was young Nick ever happy? Was there Americana? Was there baseball games? Was there something that made you believe that, that life could be better? Yeah, it was, it was fleeting. It was there. But I remember I used to ride my bicycle out to the suburbs so no one would recognize me. And I would stand outside of a supermarket and carry people's groceries without any payment, just so I could pretend to be a good person. You mentioned a good person there, and maybe as a child you didn't necessarily believe you were one. As you've gotten older and gone through 
the many years on death row, the experiences of that and subsequently coming out on the other side, do you now have a belief in yourself that you are a good person, that you've achieved that goal, I guess? I know I'm a good person because I stick to the basic principles of being a good person. I have a very purposeful life and I've helped many people in the last few years to hold on, to not kill themselves. They use me as a beacon of survival, and I adhere to that factor by being very loyal to them in that way. So by the many acts alone that I've done since my release 12 years ago, I know I'm a good person. I just had to fight through a mountain of pain to get there. Is that not pressure, though, having to be a beacon, having other people's happiness or even lives dependent on you? Do you accept that responsibility do you encourage the responsibility to something that matters to you i have to accept it because i stepped out there in the documentary fear of 13 or in the book fear of 13 people recognize that i'm stepping out there on a platform to say not only did i never have one psychiatric counseling session but i'm strong enough to help others and i have to believe that whether or not others will Your story is as fascinating as it is dark. And I guess everything began with the alcoholism. How is a 10-year-old drinking? Where where were you getting this alcohol from? And more importantly, what was it doing to you? What What was this drink doing to you as a young child? Alcohol was available at any family gathering. It's the first gateway drug for anyone. And I just felt... As soon as I consumed alcohol as a 10-year-old or 11-year-old, I was no longer terrified of being attacked again or tormenting myself mentally. I could give myself a mental break from that ongoing anguish, and therein lies the addiction to it. So within short order, every day I was drinking. Your teen years progressed, and as you got to 18, 19, something massively consequential happens, an incident with a police officer that would completely and fundamentally change your life forever. In December of 1981, I was stopped while driving a stolen car, and I was high on drugs, and the police officer assaulted me and falsely fabricated attempted murder charges against me. I was devastated. I was 20 years old, about to be, and I was thrown into prison and charged with these crimes and told that I was going to suffer for the rest of my life a life sentence. It was at that moment that I did the craziest and stupidest thing of all. That crazy thing was, it's almost unbelievable to talk about it now, isn't it? You saw a newspaper article and decided to, just tell us us the story if you can. I was sitting in a prison cell with a newspaper article. The front page of the paper had been ripped off, so all it was was page three. And there on page three was the recorded crime of Linda May Craig, a woman who had been abducted and murdered in the area, a complete mystery to the police. There, in that moment, I had a silly notion come to me. What if I knew something about this crime? Would the police believe me? Would they let me out? And so followed a mantra in a mind that was so broken that I made up a lie, told the police I could help them solve the crime. In short order, they found out I was lying to them, and when they did, they decided to blame it on me. Just that simple. When you were accused of the crime, 
what was going through your head? Was there the idea that everything would turn out okay? Or based on your life up to that point, were you under the realisation that perhaps you were going to go to jail and perhaps for a very long time? I was already facing life imprisonment for the abduction and kidnapping of a police officer. I was facing the death penalty for the rape and killing of a woman I never met. I had no education. I was 20 years old. I had no money. And no one was going to believe me. I knew that. So I was treated scornfully and abused all along the process. I tried to hang myself initially, but the guards cut me down and wanted me to stay around and suffer all the way, they told me. There's a key quote in the documentary when you say... No one is going to believe me. How alone did you feel? Did you feel perhaps even more alone then than you did on death row? The worst feeling was not only did I know no one would believe me, but I was sitting at home with my parents at the time of the murder, and no one would believe them either. And in that crushing realization, you're just defeated from telling people, hey, I didn't do it. You don't want to raise your head up and say anything because no one's going to believe you. The charges are made, the trial happens, and the verdict is guilty. What happens next? Was the death penalty issued then, or was it life imprisonment? What, what was the situation? The jury, in their hurry to go home and celebrate on that weekend, took time out to go to the Wagon Wheel restaurant and decide whether or not to put me to death at the age of 21 over their dessert. They then hurriedly brought back in the verdict, delivered it to his honor, and he looked at me and told me I, my sentence would be death. They then put me on a bus, and they took me to one of the hardest prisons in America at that time. Huntington State Prison in the state of Pennsylvania was the only prison ever condemned by the United Nations for its active practices of torture. The documentary and, and the book explains the cruelty of life there, but can you just give us an example of just how alienating the situation initially was? When you first step in, what was the first time you realised that this was perhaps even worse than your horrible expectations. All the other prisoners got to get up and walk off the bus when I got to that prison. They left me on the bus, and four men roughly ran onto the bus and pulled me off, lined me up against the wall, and I was instructed from that moment that I would not be able to speak in that prison. As the... The situation evolved. I realized right at that moment I was being set up to be fed to these officers. And at the conclusion of the officer, who was a lieutenant, smacking me across my face, he then gave me to his officers for 30 seconds, and they beat me with their sticks for 30 seconds. I was drugged into a cell, thrown on the floor, and left there to wait for the nurse. One would think that the death penalty in itself is perhaps the ultimate sentence and there's a, maybe a misconception that, that once that sentence has been given, it's almost a serene ride into death. But from what you're saying is that the death penalty, the sentencing was almost the high point and then it just got even worse from there. Or even just the starting point because once I was sentenced to death, 
and I was convicted of the rape and murder of a woman based on stalking her, it seemed to open the floodgate of the torture. From not being allowed to speak even in my own cell for the first two years, to being taken out of my cell one day and put into a cage and made to beat another man senseless under the threat of being beaten to death. It was a horror show. What was their justification for sentencing you? What was the key moment in which the jury became sure that you were guilty, despite the fact, as you've said a couple of times, you'd never even met this person before? They showed the jury photographs while the decedent's husband was testifying of her in a portrait-style photograph, followed by pictures of what was done to her as she laid out on the autopsy table. And the jury looked at this woman's disfigured face and the stab wounds that were clearly visible in these photographs, and they made up their mind right then I had to suffer for that. The jury didn't even finish the trial before they turned away from me and they could never look at me again. Once the sentence has been assured and you were in prison, what I found very interesting reading up on this was that the majority of your time was spent in solitary confinement. You spent over 8,000 days inside the prison. Most people can't even stand one day with their own company. How did you get through it? I took everything off the walls. I put a single photograph of myself on that wall. I then, very politely, began speaking to that photograph as if it was my best friend in life, telling him I would make him strong enough and serene enough to handle whatever came our way and that he was going to be my hero. Another thing that became hugely important to you was literature, was books. I understand when you were incarcerated, initially your reading comprehension was perhaps lower than it should have been, but quite incredibly you taught yourself not just to read, but to immerse yourself in language, reading all these authors, Dickens or whomever, but you managed to learn words and then utilise them in a variety of different ways. It's true. When I went to trial at the age of 20, everyone basically spoke over me. My command of the English language was laughable, to say the least. But through the long process of taking the dictionary apart word by word using the ten times rule, where I wrote each word's definition down, wrote down the spelling correctly ten times as well, and then used each word in a sentence ten different times, committing those words to memory, I began to create a vernacular that allowed me then to follow on with a reading comprehension that allowed me to devour thousands of books, go to university, and more importantly, stand up for myself and learn how to fight for myself in the legal process. I believe the title The Fear of 13 comes from one of the words that you learned, is that correct? Yes, triskaidekaphobia is the fear of the number 13 or the related fears to the number 13. And it was during my interview for this documentary that that word came out, just like phantasmagoria or many other multiple-syllable words. And the director liked that. For me, I kind of still am afraid of the 13th, so I don't 
I don't particularly love the idea of the film being named that, but I'm okay with it. In the documentary, you mentioned the phrase that true storytelling is the telling of life. And you seem to be enamored with that idea. But how difficult was it to detach yourself from the fantasy of the novels and the books you were reading with the grimness of your ultimate surroundings? Well, I embraced the idea that I wasn't going home. I embraced the fact that I was going to be executed. So I tried my best to make myself as polished as I could so that during a few moments of my life, I could recite my speech before they executed me. Now, no matter what it took, I was going to try very hard to master language skills and not falter on that day, and nothing else mattered to me. What would the speech have encapsulated? Can you still recall the words that you had intended to use? That I was like a neutrino passing through their lives, and though they were putting me to death, it didn't matter, because I had already erased the person that they thought I was and replaced him with someone that I respected and loved. Therefore, whatever they did to execute me, it didn't matter, because I had found a way to love myself. You also found somebody else to love when you were inside, and this became a huge moment for you when you, you fell in love, then you found a way of a possible escape route. A second way of escaping from death row without escaping. So in 1988, I became the very first man in America on death row to seek DNA testing. The year prior, I met a woman. Her name was Jackie. She came to visit me as part of the process to try and get that prison shut down that I was in. People were killing themselves. The average rate of survival on my unit was only five years. People were dying left and right, and these people were trying to shut the unit down. Jackie was one of them. When she interviewed me, I didn't have a single complaint about the place. Didn't care where I was. It was more important of who I was becoming. And that led to our beginning. We're going to touch that in just a second, but you mentioned it was a second escape because there was a legitimate first escape as well, right? Yeah, unfortunately, on February 15th, 1985, I escaped from death row in America. I was on the FBI's most wanted list for 25 days and I handed myself back in. No one caught me. I could have kept going. But I decided I had to go back to death row on my own. Why? They were going to torture my family, and I didn't do it. And I figured even if I had to die for something I didn't do, at least they would leave my family alone. The DNA. Just tell us, because it was 1988, I believe, when you first became aware that this was a concept, that this was something that was beginning to solve crimes, that was beginning to absolve people of crimes that they had been proposed to have committed. But despite that, it still took over a decade and a half almost for you to be released. I know it's difficult to explain it in just a question, but can you just tell the people listening why DNA was significant and also why it took so long for it to absolve you? Mrs. Craig was raped and she fought with her attacker. The murderer left his gloves inside of her vehicle with the doors locked, the interior lights on, 
as a taunt to the police. He knew he had left his evidence behind. He didn't know about DNA, and there was no such thing in 1981. The police knew whoever wore those gloves was the murderer. And this was the onset of the professional effort to murder me. When I asked for DNA testing in 1988, all of the autopsy material was then thrown away. When I discovered new evidence, they stole that as well. So I watched as my country tried to murder me, even though I was trying to use DNA evidence to prove my innocence. It got to the stage where time and time again, you thought it was going to happen, that this item, that this piece of evidence was going to become the proving ground to get you out. And then after disappointment after disappointment, you got very ill. And then you decided that enough was enough and that your time had run out. When I turned myself back in from escape, I was given a a four-minute beating by the prison officers. They broke my face. They broke some of my teeth. They beat me so badly that they paraded me around like a puppet on a stick to show other prisoners not to escape. I was treated for the dental work, and the dentist didn't change the return unit that suctions out the blood. I contracted hepatitis C, and in 2000, I entered treatment for it, and they blinded me. By 2002, I had had enough, and I decided I was going to ask to be executed for a crime I didn't do. Was there any warmth inside you when you made that decision? Or was it just a cold, calculated realisation that this was it? I was fighting against my deteriorating health, and I felt like whatever chance I had left to find whatever I could, that was the way for me to go. I had worked too hard to become someone I cared and respected about to die of an illness because I was listening to the others die of it and the torture they endured by the staff was cruel. One thing that fascinates me about your story is that you were an innocent man on death row and you've told your story very well and you've told it very honestly and truthfully. From your perspective, and this is a very broad question, do you think it's easier for somebody who knows they're innocent to survive on death row? Or do you think that somebody who has accepted the responsibility of their crime and knows they're guilty, do you think death row is easier for them? Wow, I never really considered that, but I think it's easier for me knowing that I didn't do it so that I could have a purpose to what I was being there for. I don't know how I could have faced any of this had I killed someone. I think... No effort would have been made to develop in the way that I did. So although it was emotionally harder on me, I'd rather, much rather, be innocent and go through it than to be guilty. A few of our shows on Crown Investigation at the moment, for example, The Jail, 60 Days In, or Critical Evidence, have looked at this analytical nature of crime. And there seems to be a movement at the moment for people to become more attuned, more aware and more interested in crime, but also crime conditions, prison conditions, jail conditions, how prisoners are treated. 
some people believe that prisoners should be treated more harshly. Some people think they should be treated with more deference. And they look at countries in Scandinavia, for example, where prisoners are treated particularly well and the crime rate has dropped accordingly. What are your thoughts? Do you think that a prisoner should be punished or do you think it should be rehabilitated? They have to be given an opportunity to replace their chaos with structure. The one reason people go back to prison is because they're unstructured in their life hanging out all the time with the wrong people, doing all that. So the United Kingdom needs to adopt a lot of the worldwide programs, like you said, from Scandinavia or others, and implement them as best that they can to reapply a notion of structure to people's lives. And making one thing clear, every person who goes to prison is coming home, whether on his feet on his back, how you treat that person is going to determine how they behave when you get they get out. Period. Against all odds, insurmountable odds, unbelievable odds, you got out. You survived. And you did to tell the tale. How was that moment when innocence was proven, when you got that phone call and they said, Nick, forget everything else because this is you from now on. You're an innocent man, and everyone knows it now. It was so deflating to get this phone call. At the same time that my lawyers were informing me that DNA evidence was proving me innocent, they were also revealing to me that they never believed me. They were making jokes about how I was the office joke. I hung up the phone from them immediately. I didn't have time for it. I then called my mother, and as I began to reveal to her that her son was coming home after 20 years, she said, Nikki, that's wonderful, but I can't celebrate. Your brother has been on an alcoholic binge and he's having a seizure at my feet and I'm waiting for the ambulance. Maybe, God willing, now maybe one of my sons can live. Do you feel like you have lived since? Do you think that you've made the most out of freedom? I've certainly made a good go of it. Uh, Not only writing my new book, having a new film, uh, but everything I've done, I've done really well for a purposeful act. Speaking in schools for students to understand the purpose of their education and how important it is for them. Going around the world speaking before the United Nations or governments and campaigning on behalf of human rights and against the death penalty has really given me that sense of purpose. And now you're living over here. You're living in England. How did that come about? Like, Why England? What's the story? And and I guess what do you make of our country? Twelve years ago, I was invited to speak before a joint session of the lower house of commons in parliament. I fell in love with England. It was everything different than Philadelphia. And... I liked it that I could be on a permanent holiday from my woes. And I love the structure of this country. I love the people and the way they behave in unexpected ways. And I now have children here, and I love living in the West Country. And I'm an Anglophite, is what I like to tell people. (laughs) I truly love England, man. Martin, I just, it makes me happy to be here because. I feel like I'm away from all the things that once destroyed me. It's wonderful. 
two more questions for you. The first one is, all these words you learnt, all these new phrases, is there one in particular that sticks out in your mind? Is there one word that when you were faced your lowest lows, is there a word or a phrase or a saying that, that made you feel like something was possible? Assiduously. What does that mean? It means, in the terms that I'll use it, I love you assiduously. It is the nth degree of an act of caring for someone. So I love assiduously because it's directly connected to the word love. And I like that. I like that enhancement to the word of something we all know. So I remember the very first time I used it on a lawyer and he asked me to spell it and I correctly spelled it. He asked me what it meant and I correctly told him what it was and he left me alone. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Last question. When you think back to the 19-year-old you, a drug addict, unemployed, committing crimes, homeless, and you think to who you are now, you say that you found yourself on death row, that you identified who you are, what you are as a person, how you feel, how you love. When you think back to the 19-year-old, if this never happens, if this police officer doesn't attack you, and you're not charged, what happens to the 19-year-old you? Would you still be here? I guess I'm just like the kids in my photograph from my childhood. They're all dead. Both my brothers are dead. Everyone I grew up with is either dead or in prison for life. I had no hope of surviving until I got put on death row. Not just prison, Mark. Death row, where I could be given a chance to be saved. So I'm very grateful that I went through this experience and came out of it because it taught me how to become a pious, humble person with a purposeful outlook in life. And I would have never gotten that, that out prison. I believe that. Nick, it's been a pleasure. If people want to get in contact with you, say hello, or just read your books, watch watch the films, what's the best way of doing it? Have you got a website? Or Facebook, else? Twitter, and nickyaris.org. Uh, I also am going back to speaking in schools to authorsabroad.com, uh, which is a really cool program where a headmaster from the United Kingdom got all these authors to go to school and share literature with students. Well, that interview concludes this edition of the Crime Investigation Podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you have, feel free to get in touch with us. We are on Twitter at CI and Facebook at CI UK. Get in touch. If you want to know anything about the world of crime, we are the place to go to. Our website, crimeinvestigation.co.uk, has loads of interesting articles. And we show programming 24 hours a day on Sky, Freeview, BT, Talk Talk. Get involved and let us know what you think. But for now... 
the Crime Investigation podcast is over. Until next time, stay curious. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks. You're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. <laughs> 